Hey, everybody. How are we? Well, it's nice and intimate tonight. I absolutely love this. It's almost like we're sitting at home on our couches getting ready to tune into some reality TV, right? Look, for those that don't know, I'm Ali Clark from Mix 102.3 and I write for In Daily. And before we do go on, I would like to acknowledge that we are meeting here on the lands, uh, the traditional lands of the Ghana people and that we recognise the Ghana people as the custodians of the Adelaide, Greater Adelaide region and that their cultural and heritage beliefs are still as important to them uh, today. Now, let's get ready for one of our best conversations ever and it's wonderful. So, a couple of new faces. I can recognise a few people that have come to these events but for anybody that hasn't been here before, this is going to be incredibly relaxed. I've just been speaking to our author out in the green room. I'm not going to be doing all of the work. We'll be having a chat about it and then you guys can ask the questions that you want to hear as well, okay? So, very, very casual and very, very relaxed but you guys are here. We've also got a whole heap of people streaming from home. Hello to all of you. It's just a camera. You can't see them. They're actually at home. Yep. And so I'll just jump into the only last little bit of housekeeping as well. If you need to go to the bathrooms, they're just out through those doors and just turn your phones on silent. Of course, if you're watching us home, keep it up. That's fine. We won't hear you ringing from there. And social media, go for it. Get on the meads and really support the city of the libraries of Marion here because they do a fantastic job. All right. So let's just have a little bit about our author. She's a former Labor government staffer who then made what many have thought was probably be a bit of a bizarre decision to jump into the heady world of reality TV to try to find love. She's been on both The Bachelor and The Bachelor in Paradise. She's been a regular contributor to Triple J's youth current affairs program, Hack, if you see that. And she's also former host of The House and the Senate, which featured conversations with the women of Australian Parliament, as well as Cocktails and Roses, where she used to recap the Bachelor and the Bachelorette with none other than our Osha Gunsberg. So, this book, The Villain Edit, is her very, very first. Please welcome Alicia Aiken Radburn. And yes, this is wine. We're not going to pretend it's not. <laughs> but that's basically so relaxed and uh, we want to feel like we're in your home with you. So, hands up who has watched The Bachelor? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hands up who's seen any of the three times that Alicia's been on? Yeah, okay. Hands up who thinks reality TV is real? Oh, hey, oh, all right, all right. We've got a heap of cynics here, which is brilliant. All right, so let's jump into this. Now, we will be talking about the book and we'll talk to you about how you can buy the book if you haven't already got your own copy. But with any of your questions, just be aware if you have had a sneak peek of it, not to go too spoilery because we don't want to ruin it for everybody else. All right, Alicia, why the hell would you go from politics to the politics of finding love on television? It is a pretty easy answer, but I think it's some it's an answer that has befuddled a lot of people, mostly in politics. I did it because I wanted to. It looked like fun. It looked like a great experience. And it was an opportunity that landed in my lap at 25 years old. And I really thought, why not? And, and they are contrasting worlds, politics and reality TV, though there are some similarities. In politics and what I was doing in politics, staffing, there is sort of a cultural feeling that staffers are there, neither should neither be seen nor heard. And that makes sense. The politician is the star. There was a rule in our office that if you were doing a media event with your politician, if you appeared in the background of a news item TV at night, show TV yep. show, TV item on the 6pm news, that you had to buy the office a, uh, a slab of beer. <laughs> and so I think I did find politics quite a restrictive environment. I found any time that I wanted to have any sort of sort of weighed into the political debate myself. It, it seems kind of strange working in politics. You, f you feel like you would be quite active in that dialogue. But there's kind of rules of engagement. And as a staffer, you need to be representing the party. So if you feel differently, that doesn't really work. 
So it was very restricted, it was very constrained and in comparison, reality TV just felt like the Wild West. So, yeah. so it was appealing. Yeah. Now, I'll get, get, we'll keep on with that, but just really quickly, I've always wanted to notice this and only because you brought up that if you got in the back of a TV shot, you'd have to shout everybody a beer. Um, who teaches the other politicians to nod in the background of the shots? <laughs> you know the ones, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it actually plays into the same sort of culture that I was touching on that, like, everyone wants to be supporting that central figure, the leader or, in my case, the Labor Party. And I think it is something that permeates party politics that and – and, and there is shades within this. There's nuance because I, for instance, was drawn to the Labor Party because I'm a collectivist at heart. I believe that the collective can together – make really positive change in the world and it's not by us as individuals prioritising ourselves. But then you sort of sway the pendulum too far and then you've got this setting where you're kind of sycophantic, I think the word is. Mm -hmm. I say this as someone who's just written a very long book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So basically the reason that you've said that you went on this is because it looked fun and why not give it a go? But then you go on three times and you get very different experiences on all three times. And we'll break them down for a little bit. But let's start with the villain edit, which is where we are here. This is when you go on for the very first time. Nick Cummings, who's a rugby player. Oh, rugby player. <laughs> he is the bachelor and he, everybody knows him because of his curly hair, the honey badger. You go on there and from our perspective, you were a cow. You and those other girls, you were nasty. Did you know in that process as it was unfolding what it was going to look like or how you were going to be made and portrayed to everybody else watching? Yeah, I think this is a hard one. And one thing that I've tried to, as I sort of, and it's really hard translating sitting in the comfort of your own home or in my case, a lot of the time, I'm from Perth, obviously. South Perth Library was where I did a lot of the writing. It's hard to translate feeling comfortable writing at home into public thoughts. But one thing now that I've sort of entered this stage of doing in conversations and translating my work into media messages, one thing I've tried to make really clear is that my experience of my villainy and my villain edit is exactly that and it's my experience because I think that there are a lot of different people who participate in reality TV, lots of different villains who would have different feelings, accounts and reflections on their behaviours on the show. And so in my case, I think that I did have quite a high level of self-awareness of what was happening on the show. I remember, and this is classic, I you, you get eliminated, I'm put in a white van, taken off to an apartment, they put you there for the night and then you're sort of just like free to go back into society after being there for six weeks. I remember it was the craziest feeling of feeling like I didn't have to ask for permission to get a coffee. I was like, oh, yeah, you can just walk up to the coffee shop and ask for an almond latte. And I, I, I came back to my girlfriends in my share house and they all the first question was, like, who are you? Who are you on the show? What edit are you going to get? And I said I had enough self-awareness to know and those of you that have watched this first season, this will hit you. I said, I think I'm in the group of mean girls but I'm the least mean. <laughs> and that is kind of where it landed. So I had that level of self-awareness. As for what got me there is a different story in the sense that now, and this is what I sort of t touch on in the book, is I reflect on my behaviour and how I sort of, my dynamics with producers, because I've really tried to figure out that there, there is elements of the edit. I think a lot of, I've had, some circumstances where I've sort of put the book into the world, it's on Instagram and I've had other reality TV villains comment sort of being like, thank you for exposing the awfulness of production and the book is not that. It's, it's, actually, it's actually more of a reflection on my own behaviour 
and how I contributed to that edit. It's not it's not as black and white as when people comment on Daily Mail articles and they're like, well, you said it, so you must be an evil person. There are elements of reality TV production that contribute. But then it's also not as simple as saying, well, it was all the producers. Exactly. So okay, so you're putting your hand up and owning this bit in the middle. So then in the process, how did you actually get picked to be on here for the – you know, how do people get cast? Because now you quite often hear that people get on these shows because they're either actors trying to get their 15 minutes of fame. They might have a high Instagram following, whatever it might be. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, it was a surprise to me to be cast and I think that – Did they approach you? No, I applied. So I was – and this is sort of the opening of the first chapter – is called The Application and it's my favourite chapter. Uh, I spoke about it on Instagram the other night that it's structured around filling in the actual bachelor application, each of the questions. I think that – and this is the first time that I've thought about this when you've, uh, you've asked that question. But I think even – I was surprised that I was cast. I just kept doing the things. I did the application and then I went along to the group auditions and those went really well. I, you do the group audition and then they pick like two girls from each group, two or three, and they send you to the next stage where it's all the head honchos from the TV production. So you've got like the head honcho at Warner Brothers, head honcho at Channel 10, and I think it even goes higher. I think like the, the top TV guy from Warner Brothers, not just for The Bachelor, was sitting on that panel. And I was surprised I got past that too and so I think that a part of why I chose to do the show was that I was flattered, that I felt accepted and I felt like I'd impressed somebody. Getting back to you being open and honest and saying my behaviour has definitely contributed to this edit in whatever ways, were there moments on there now that you look back and are not proud of? Yeah, it's hard because my moments are less... I guess, clear than some other people. It's, I, I don't think I was necessarily featured. I wasn't really featured that much at all, to be honest, in that first season. It was kind of guilt by association because I was friends with two of the girls who were making more explicit comments. That there were There is a moment that I talk about in the book where unbeknownst, and this is the first time I've spoken about it, but... I was eliminated and then I was brought back to set by production a couple of days later. They messaged me. So I'm, I'm, I'm eliminated. I'm back at my share house in Sydney and they messaged me and they asked if I would come to another interview. And I received that message and I was like, they love me. <laughs> they, this is great. Like I am, I've done a really good job. They came and picked me up in the white van again, drove me back to set. The white van is very mysterious. And I sat in a room with them and they didn't have enough narrative for their first episode. And they told me a little bit about what they wanted to create and I did it for them. It's like they brought me into the trust and made me feel like as a friend hey, we're trying to do this with the first episode. We've got this person doing this. We've got this doing this. But we don't have the narrative to go in between. And I so wanted to please and do a good job for my friends. And that's something to be interrogated, that concept of friendship, because it's mixed. I do, I do consider some producers still my friends, but then it's murky. And I did it. And I regret that looking back because I hadn't seen a lot of the things that they were getting me to narrate. And I think that that is ethically not good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where were you most of the times when you would watch the show back? Oh, uh, mixed. Sometimes with friends, like the first, the premiere episode was with a group of people and I was a montage girl. So I was like, everyone gets their moment. And then I was just in the like seven seconds. <laughs> At the end. And I remember <laughs> saying like, oh yeah, it's okay. But I'm obviously disappointed. And then as actually as the villainy increased and as the public derision <laughs> increased, 
I started to watch it either alone or I would watch it with my fellow mean girls, Kat and Romy. Yeah. Was that healthy for you to watch it by yourself? Oh, definitely not because it's – I think it's – and this translates and I hope a lot of the book translates to the real world but it's like any time that, that we're going through sort of a crisis period and the worst thing that you can do is isolate yourself and the hardest thing to do is to talk to somebody – but it is the thing that fixes it. Like I know that when I get to dark places or when I'm feeling lonely, the last thing I want to do is pick up the phone and be vulnerable and talk to somebody. But as soon as I have the conversation, I genuinely leave that conversation thinking, oh, I feel good. So the the watching alone was not, not good because you're in your own thoughts and then you take it to 3 a.m. and yeah. We'll get to now some of the, the vitriol that was directed to you and it really touched me one time you were talking about the moment with Kat and Romy and you were actually watching it back with them and everybody's phone started to blow up. By this time you've already stopped re- – you have already stopped reading the comments and a lot of the Instagram and you – No, no, no. I read oh, no, you everything. They, yeah, they, they, they stopped. Had. Sorry, they I had. didn't. I was yeah. like someone's talking about me. I was still holding on to this like – I want to be affirmed that I have something to offer. But they had stopped that but then all of a sudden the phone started ringing. Was Romy's phone? Was it, it was Kat's phone. phone. Talk us through exactly what happened and the sort of stuff that was being said to her down that phone line. Yeah, so... Maybe explain what had just unfolded on television as well. So it was one of the... It was, it was our elimination episode... So it was really the climax of the Mean Girls being eliminated and that was a very, I guess from the audience perspective, it's like it's a good climax. It's like, oh, these people are so awful. Get them, turf them out of here. And and particularly Kat and Romy and I had – that there were some really bad interview grabs where they were – really not nice to the other women in the house. Was it who they were in that moment or was it taken out of context? It's hard because I don't want to speak for them and their experiences and how they reflect on them. I know that at least when we were doing the media after, they did express regret and it was hard because, and this is something I try and explore in the book, but it is very difficult. The relationships between the women in the house were complex in that and it's it's a really hard thing to explain but it felt like we're living in this mansion for six weeks with 28 other women dwindling halfway through the season and we're friends we were all friends there's not this I think people watch you know you're watching The Bachelor on the screen and it does feel like heightened emotion And this was so hard to articulate that I don't think I've really nailed it in the book, but I'll talk about it tonight. Your friends during the experience. It's it's like when the cameras arrive and they set up, you pick up the narrative from the last time that you were shooting. So so all of the you've been you've been playing happy families and not in an insincere way. You're actually friends. And then the next time the cameras come out, suddenly you're talking about Honey Badger again. And suddenly you're being asked questions like, why do you think that Tennille did X, Y, Z? Or why do you think that Romy stormed off in that way? And then the conflict starts up again. And really, watching you guys all sit around being happy families and being genuine friends is not making TV. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So then bring us to this time where you've all finally got evicted. Australia's cheering. Yay, we've got rid of the mean girls. You, Kat and Romy are sitting there and... Kat's phone rings. The phone rings. So the comments are flooding in and and it was relentless. Like we're looking at our phone, I really can't explain how relentless it was. I think actually Romy... Romy and Kat had turned their comments off. If there was one remaining, it was Kat. But the DMs were absolutely flooded. And then her phone started ringing and she picked it up and it was just like a litany of profanities, right? The person ringing doesn't think that they'll actually get through to another person on the end of the phone call. 
which I think is something to interrogate how we would treat each other when we're actually in person anyway. So it was almost like when they heard it connect, they just like went with what they were planning to say and they were just like, oh, you know, C-bomb, F-bomb, your mother should be ashamed of you. And we were really nervous because we thought, we were like, oh, she's been doxxed. There's like some Facebook group out there and someone has searched her number and put her private phone number up. But it was actually, it was still on her Instagram profile. That's how unprepared we sort of were. And someone had just called her off her Instagram. And then we took her phone number down and we sort of all just watched the rest of the episode. And I, bringing it back to 3am, I headed home and... I, that was the first time that I had a true anxiety attack about what had just happened. Why did you interact with the people who were bagging you? Because you do and you talk about it quite a lot. And one of the things I enjoy about this book is, unfortunately, this interaction is something increasingly that this generation, our generation and the kids of us will and do deal with. And I know that I deal with it even being a slightly public person. Why did – and, you know, we're always told ignore, block, delete, whatever it is. Why did you decide that you were going to interact with some of these people that were abhorrent to you? Yeah, it, it's really – it was a myriad of factors which I explore in the book. It was partly – the word that I've used in the book is self-flagellation. Partly it was because I think I, I could see the series go to air and almost I internalised the edit as well – and I was like, fuck, I've really, I've really done something regretful and this is my punishment and I must take it. It was part that. It was part that and, and this sort of connects with why I think I sort of did the behaviour and very briefly the, the dynamics between me and the producers, I sort of touched on it earlier, but in that interview space, what it was for me for someone, that the, the theme that runs through the whole book is this craving for external validation, which is a really vulnerable, embarrassing thing to admit, but that, that was my driver. So I would sit with the producer, I'd say a snarky comment, they'd laugh, and then I, I would get that sort of dopamine rush of I'm doing a good job and I would continue. And so connected to that, there was a part of me that really feared being – and this is awful to look back on because we were all valid no matter how we were placed or ranked, which is just a whole – you could write a whole nother book about that, <laughs> that situation. I really feared going on night one. I thought that's a reflection of who I am and my, my, my worth. And, and so I made a decision consciously or subconsciously that I would I prefer to be somebody than nobody. And I think that was with the comments as well. Though a very reoccurring comment for me in that first season was sheep. They, I just got strings of sheep emojis because I was following the mean girls. Mm. And again, that's another layer of external validation. I, wa I wanted these people to like me as well. Tell me about Bobette. Tell everybody oh. who Bobette was and what you did. <laughs> I'm like, shout out to Bobette if you're here. Okay. So Bobette is a character in the villain edit. She – and I – sorry, I should stop myself and I've got to get used to this on the book tour because I don't know their pronoun – Babette is a person in a forum that exists. It's a Bachelor Superfan forum and it's a forum that I discovered very soon after I was eliminated from The Bachelor. The first thing that I did when the producers hand you your phone fully charged and I think that they think they're doing a nice thing. It's like, oh, we just set you up. Like, it's fine. Go back to this hotel room. By yourself. By yourself. Take this box of misery with you. And I Googled my name. Oh, my God. And I found this forum and, the, like, just to position it in time, the series had not aired yet. I just, uh, I just finished filming and this forum had already found my name, my occupation. They already said that they'd already made a correct bet that I was going to be the villain. And they said, she works in politics, politicians 
are disliked in Australia. <laughs> Maybe she's been cast as a villain and that was the first time I read those words. And so I discovered this forum and I became very in, enmeshed in this forum and what, what ev every opinion that they had on me. And the person I became most fixated on was this user called Babette. And I don't know anything about Babette. I don't know if she's female, male, however they identify. And I just followed her commentary on me through the full three seasons. And, and I, it was almost like I craved her to come around to me. And she did. So that's <laughs> – and it's hard because I feel like yay too – but I feel like that's also unhealthy, so it's hard. And I would – it was like that feeling when you're driving home and then you get to your driveway and you're like, oh, how did I get home? I feel like I don't remember getting there. I remember this one time and this was a clear – I was like, I have a problem. I just had my phone and I, like, ghost-typed the URL to this forum and I was there and I was reading and I had this moment where I was like, how did I get here? Yeah, so it yeah. became that ingrained in my life. So after, you know, you're in a villain edit, you're having all of these personal attacks via social media and everything else, why the hell would you do it again? Yeah, so a <laughs> couple of factors. The book is just like grey areas and nuance, the whole thing. There was a part of it that I just really enjoyed it despite – how it sort of had turned out. I really loved the TV production side. Like I think I had this like little performer girl that was like, oh, this is fun. We're on TV. There's cameras. There's people, you know, directing me places. So there was that. And I think a lot of people can relate to that sort of like child wanting to be a star moment. <laughs> Very embarrassingly, my first Hotmail account was star in a shadow at hotmail.com. <laughs> Horrendous. You could psychoanalyze me so from that. <laughs> so there was there was just genuine I enjoyed it, aside from the feedback. There was it was always it was in really quick succession. So I don't think I'd even been eliminated yet during the airing until Warner Brothers had rung and they had said, do you want to come do Bachelor in Paradise? And then I think there was a pragmatic factor in thinking if this TV show that is aired to half a million people on average a night has presented this image of who I am as a person, well, the only way that I can kind of effectively remedy that is to do it all again and, I mean, pragmatically speaking, it kind of worked. <laughs> well, it did. It did. And we'll get onto the heartbreak in a second. But did you seriously – I guess that, uh, you know, and all of us – I don't think anybody put their hand up when saying, you know, is reality TV real. Was there not a feeling of you that would say, I don't know if I could trust them? Like, I, because I will go on to the second thing and I will, in my best efforts, show them how amazing I am. I'm not going to get sucked in – to, you know, following two other women. Mm. I'm not going to get caught up in that. But I still don't think I can trust whatever they're going to put out of me to be that real reflection of me. Yeah, it's such an – and it's an – it's one I haven't thought about but it's starting to come up more and more and I, th and I think it – I haven't thought about it because there's this concept in your question of betrayal and I've heard it before. It's like didn't you feel betrayed by the producers? And I think for me – and it goes to that sort of self-awareness and I think it was maybe my politics background. I felt like I had sort of a good level of media literacy. I definitely – whether this is good or bad is another thing to investigate. I think I had the perspective of like the producers were doing their job and I didn't really take it personally. Well, you've been a political staffer. You know how shitty jobs can be. Yeah, exactly. And I and I guess I and you're so right because like I had I'd just come from working for Bill Shorten and I, I I knew him as a person and I knew him to be quite a lovely, genuine guy. Yet and and you know, completely valid to attack on policy, but I also saw him be relentlessly attacked for things like the one that sticks out for me is like people used to give him so much shit for running. Like he would run every day. He would run like 10 kilometres, no matter what city he was in. And I thought, fuck me. I can't. <laughs> I went on one run with him. 
<laughs> and I was like, after two minutes, I was like, nah. I'm out. And people just like <laughs> really, really attacked him for it. It's like that is a healthy, beautiful thing we should all aspire to be doing. So when we get to this second one and you go on as the redemption story and you end up in heartbreak, can you give us an example because we've spoken about, you know, producers getting you back to help with the narration or, Mm -hmm. you know, there's another moment too and I'll leave you to discover it in the book for those that haven't read it where they tell you that the cameras are off and they're actually rolling. But now if we're looking at the relationships, how do in this game of love, Mm. reality game of love, Give us some examples of how the relationships and the dates and the where, you know, that is kind of influenced by the story and the people that they Ooh. want to stick around. Oh, gosh. I don't know if – that's a hard one because it's not been my experience and I don't know if it's because it's how I've moved through the game of The Bachelor and I think that's a very good describing word to be honest in a sense. So to look at my relationships, you've got Honey Badger who I spoke to for all of 15 minutes in six weeks. I'm not joking. Like it was – I'd give it 20 minutes if I was to be generous. It was a five-minute chat on the first night and then I might have gotten a five-minute chat at another cocktail party. It just wasn't a whole lot of time. And then you get to my Bachelor in Paradise experiences, which both times were just incredibly genuine relationships and feelings, except for maybe, and this is going niche into Bachelor in Paradise season two, Patty. It was it was still genuine. But and so in terms of your question of like people sticking around, a concept that I do talk about in the book is the idea of pre-gaming Bachelor in Paradise, which is something that happens. So basically everyone's chatting about being cast. And, and some people have more formal conversations. So they might get an inkling like XYZ's being cast and they might ring them for a phone conversation and be like, wouldn't it be nice if we stuck around in Fiji for, for four weeks and got a really good payday? Yeah. And I think there's some fear as well of being rejected so and leaving is, on the first night. Oh, my God. Does anyone watch Surviving? You know how they all hook it up? It is. And like, Wow. So before they're even stepping onto set, those sort of discussions. I think they happen. Oh. I'm not sure though yeah, because yeah. I I tried to peep pregame with Patty, which I talk about in the book, and I like sent him messages when he was on. It was during the photo shoot episode of Bachelorette Ali's season, and I DM'd him on Instagram, and I was like thinking, oh, he'll hopefully recognize me as another contestant, and I was like looking great in that bellboy outfit or something like that (laughs) and he was nice he talked to me and this is in the book he rocked into paradise and I'm like oh my god it's Patty and we've chatted and he asked me what my name was (laughs) and so I wasn't very good at pre-gaming I don't in my experience from Bachelor in Paradise it's very obvious very quickly who is being strategic because you can see the people who are there in Fiji shot over four weeks. You can see the people who are genuinely having feelings, good or bad. And so it's just sniffed out by the other contestants very quickly. Okay. The depth of feelings that you can have when you're pashing on with someone and all I'm thinking at home is going, there's a sound guy just there. There's a camera crew just there. Yeah. How the hell do you shut that out? Okay, this is a very spicy story that I'm not sure. (laughs) I omitted it from the book, so it's exclusive here. But I had actually had a kiss with one of the crew members. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. who, Who was on set during my first kiss with Patty. And so hang on, that hang on, hang on. was hard. Okay, so you kissed oh, the someone crew. called the Daily Mail. You kissed the crew member outside of the show. Right. Outside of the show, you kissed the crew member before you then yes. kissed Patty while the crew member's watching on. Yes, mate. Some people go yes. to OnlyFans for this yes. man. This is good. Yes. <laughs> and so that was definitely hard because I was hyper aware of my surroundings going into Bachelor in Paradise, and and but then. Then that my next date was with Jules and this sounds trite to reflect back on but that was the first moment in my reality TV experience that the cameras just genuinely faded away. 
and I just was on a date with a person that I really liked. And so therefore (laughs) it is true emotion then that you're saying that breaks that down and makes Absolutely, absolutely. And it's as opposed to performance versus living. Yes, I think you're so right. And it's not that I was like fully performing with Patty, but it was just that I was on the show and like I knew that we had to like do kissing and stuff and go on dates. I would be so bad on Love Island, (laughs) do the kissing. And so we, it just didn't feel, it felt like we were sort of going through the motions rather than, yeah, I don't, like, we were never going to get to that next level. Yeah, yeah. Did you talk to the crew member? (laughs) Now I feel like I've I've actually built the story up in my mind and maybe we're just flirting. (laughs) But, you know, one and the same. I had, like, there was definitely someone that I had interest with and I I don't think he was on the Jules date from memory. (laughs) What about finding love on the show? I think a lot of people, yeah, we do see occasionally, you know, people get together, they stay together, they might have children, they might still be together. I think a lot of people would still doubt, though, the percentage-wise that mm. it can really work. But you've found love. Yes. Massively. Yeah. What was that experience like, considering where you'd lived, what you'd lived through in the previous seasons? I think even I, think even I like, was quite cynical about The Bachelor, probably, because I couldn't I – couldn't, they, they can't be more different shows – the Bachelor, you're in a house of girls and you see this guy like once every three days. Bachelor in Paradise is like Big Brother. You're just all together all the time. And I will not go into the like plied with alcohol narrative because honestly in my experience that's not actually a- accurate. That's really what people go to when they're like producers are like they're going to manipulate you. I-, I don't know. For me personally like I never was put in a position where I felt like I was – you know, past the point of being able to hold myself. Or but there would have been other people. There was cocktails. There was Absolutely. many, many cocktails. Yeah. Um, and in a social setting where you're feeling maybe uncomfortable, you're competing or, you know, whatever headspace you're in, that might yeah, be people exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so I did think it was – it was. I felt like The Bachelor was a difficult environment. Bachelor in Paradise was much better. And I experienced it once. So, you know, I've, I had felt real emotions, I should say, once on that first season of Bachelor in Paradise. Didn't think that it was going to happen again. And then it was I, – I felt the real emotions again for my beautiful husband, Glenn. Woo! <laughs> and not only was it – but it was also different to the first time on Bachelor in Paradise in the sense that, and I really talk about this in the book at length, in that that first relationship, and I've had similar relationships to the Jules dynamic in my life in that it all felt very hard and it felt very like my heart was being pulled into all the time. And I just liked him so, so, so much. And the rejection was so, so, so hard. Whereas with Glenn, I felt secure. And I felt he was calm and he affirmed me. And and it really, I, I think I said in my commitment ceremony vows, what do you call them? Vows. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said to him then that he's shown me a different kind of love, a deeper love. And that's really what it felt like. And I'm very thankful to Warner Brothers because I met my husband. Yeah. So You have referenced that some of your early behaviours was that seeking of external validation. Now it seems that's not a driver for you as Trying. much. As much. <laughs> um, do you put that growth down to the experiences you've had on the show or maybe the experiences of finding someone in your husband that makes you feel secure as yourself. I'm going to throw a whole different one out there, not to, uh, you know, my relationship with my beautiful marriage with Glenn is beautiful, but it's actually been me that has has brought myself to that point. And they say that you shouldn't write books for therapy, like you shouldn't write your memoir. And I got nervous when I read that because I was like thinking about that a lot of the time when I'm writing it and every session with my editor felt like a therapy session. And 
And I know that they say that, but to be honest, it's been such a work of self-exploration that I do feel like I've come out the other side so much stronger and and I don't know how it's going to – I said to my actual therapist, putting this book into the world is going to be my biggest sort of practice of I can create something, I can make art. That's so wanky to say. I'd take it back. <laughs> I can put something out in the world and the, the validity of it and the success of it doesn't have to be in the hands of – other people like it can just I I should be proud of myself that I've managed to write a book and put it out in the world and and so and I'm working stand by it and stand by it yeah I'm working through that because like I know that there's going to be a day I'm not encouraging you to be the one I hope you give it five stars on Goodreads (laughs) but I know I know that there's gonna be a day soon and it's been such a high of love and people sending me snippets that they are connecting with and that's all good and please do that but I know that I will read something where someone's like, absolute trash, like two stars. Mm. You could see why she went into reality TV from politics. Like I will get that critique at some point and I just have to get – I need to be in the place now that, that I don't internalise it to the extent that I think that that is who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask one more question and throw it open to you. So get your questions ready. What about the argument that people who go on to reality TV know what they're getting into and they deserve everything that comes at them? Oh, my gosh, that's such a hard question. I just think it's, I think it's like anything in life and how we, how we, like what our dynamic is with other people. I think that there needs to be a sort of general... You know what the word that I keep coming back to is proportionality and one thing that I love to interrogate because one of the big themes of the book is morality and taking account accountability for the stuff that I've done but also, you know, interrogating when when comments have just been disproportionate to, to what I did on screen. Like because I, I said one nasty thing on a reality TV show, does that mean that you call me a see you next Tuesday, say I have a huge nose and I need a nose job and that my mum should not be proud of me. So I, I think there is something and it's in ev- so many different places. It's in politics. I see it in sport too, media. Just how we – the dynamic of how we treat each other as human beings and I think that – I think if we could get the proportionality right more of the time – we would have a much nicer public sphere. Which comes back to that collectivism, that belief in that all of us together can do good. Yes. But at the moment there seems to be a channel that's promoting badness and meanness. Yeah. Maybe. All right, over to you guys. Come on, Batchy fans or people who just want to know more about the TV or the guy who she pashed that wasn't on TV. Please, you've got to put your hand up because we can't do that, like, awkward. No, 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 no. no. Here we go. Here we go. There you go. All right, up the back. Uh, How are you going? This is a friend of mine. Ripper. Come on then. Hi there. I I guess, uh, you know, it's different because you're not quite so deep in the political game now, but... I just would like you to comment on maybe some of the professional backlash that you received after coming back from the show. Obviously, politics is a very well-to-do profession with a lot of people who think very highly of themselves. And, you know, do you think it is potentially worse for women in professional positions who put themselves out there like that? Thank you, Michael. Me and Michael did Young Labour together at university, so he's very well aware of the political context. And it's a really good question and I did receive... I did receive backlash and it was... It was hard because I, I wasn't... Oh, I was actually, like, quite naive when I received the email that I was successful on The Bachelor. Like, I'm sitting in the opposition leader's office in Canberra and I'm sort of working through that... And there was 
and and I go into this in the book, but I I kind of thought I'd been I'd been involved in the Labor Party for so long, and it gave me such this like absolutely beautiful sense of belonging. Like I felt like I was an only child, and I came into this community of people that I felt shared similar values to myself, and I was just sort of like embraced with love and belonging. So I kind of thought that in the work context, and I know it's a big ask for an employer, but I kind of thought, oh, maybe like my Labor family will just like surround me with love and embrace me and send me on my way. Maybe Bill Shorten will want to be in my bachelor intro package. (laughs) Spoiler alert, he did not. (laughs) And and I look back at that girl with like a kind of beautiful naivety that I, I was so hopeful of that. And then I did receive... It was hard because it's like it's like any sort of workplace or any sort of collective space where it felt like a lot of the time it was simmering conversations that I wasn't actually a party to and I didn't really know and the people and, and people mostly protected me from them because no one's going to walk up to your friend and be like, hey, everyone's bitching about you because you've gone on The Bachelor and they think it's the worst decision of your life. You could have worked for the future Prime Minister and you're just like, what was your decision making there? And so there were only two real explicit points. It was before I was leaving the Prime, prime Minister. I was going to say he wishes that I was... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to leave the opposition leader's office and my 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 line I, I received a phone call that basically said that this was a career it was me me calling it career limiting is not a nice way to put it. They were basically like that's it. You're, you're going to be excommunicated from, communicated from the Labor Party. And then a, a female MP who it was a very progressive MP. When I came back from filming, she just did, gave me a tirade. I was at a pub. It was a social function. I was, I was really lonely in Canberra because I'd returned and I didn't have a job and I was st- like, why am I living in Canberra? No. <laughs> it's, it's a really beautiful place. Can't wait for Canberra oh, on the book tour. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was winter. It was cold. I was lonely and I was, and I was grappling with these feelings. And she basically dredged up every insecurity that I could have possibly, that was possibly within me and spewed it out to me just like that I've degraded myself, I've made a horrible decision. And I think to go to your question, Michael, I would really like us to get to the place in 2023 and I wrote a piece for the Canberra Times this weekend where I sort of, I'm referencing this book by Julia Baird which is an amazing book, it's called Media Tarts and it sort of tracks how the media has treated women in politics over many years and she provides these rules when it was first written, these sort of tips for a woman to be successful in politics and so this is from 2004 when she first wrote the book and it was basically like be a serious policy person, don't go into the sort of like celebrity of like ball gowns and bikinis, failed and and really it what it amounted to is shave off all of the parts of your personality that make you you it for me it really felt like for a woman to be successful in politics be a man be 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 reserved be careful with what you do don't talk about your private life and I think that for me in 2023 I want to get to the point where where me wearing a ball gown is not incompatible with me being a good political staffer I'm kind of I'm, – I'm completely befuddled by that. I don't understand why one should negate the other. It seems very arbitrary to me and I want to get to the point where respect is just there. It's just there because you should have it. Yeah. Not, because, not because you've, like, put out a really good media release about – some niche energy policy. <laughs> but I think that also says a little bit and the irony about it is that uh, politics is looking for ways to re-engage with those who have become disengaged or the new generation who aren't engaging and they're ignoring a massive way that people buy into 
something. And it's a little bit on our part as well yeah. as the media and as voters, constituents, in the sense that we really, like, we, I think we do often ask for our politicians to be people, but then when they do something that is people, yep. is human, if they make a mistake or, you know, just something, some, something human, ripped to shreds. So I, I think we all have our part to play, the parties, the, us as voters, and definitely a big one is the media. Got time for one more question right down here. Uh, yes, with the Batchy cast, do you keep in, do you still keep in touch with them from the and from Paradise, and are some of them still single? Oh, Jackson, <laughs> you got to ask, don't you? <laughs> Definitely, some are still single. I'll tell you that much. And I do keep in contact with a lot of them. I've got the beautiful uh, Laura down here in the front row. I'm trying to think of who your bachelor was, Lockie. No, oh, Jimmy. Sorry. So yeah, like I, I'm, I'm really good friends, and and, and I think. This is an interesting one because it's something that comes up heaps. People are like, why do people who have gone on reality TV, like, why are they all friends? It's, like, kind of annoying. Like, why do they all just group together? And it's because you've just, like, instantaneously got a shared foundation and a really big shared experience to work off. And that doesn't mean that, like, you're going to meet a reality TV person and you're going to end up friends. But it does give you a good place to start and, and then you're able to figure out from then whether you actually like each other as people. But it's a, it's a good start. <laughs> All right, a couple of really quick ones to finish. Would you ever go back into politics? Well, I'm sort of still there in, the sen in a sense. I'm, I work in advocacy for a not-for-profit now in Western Australia. It's kind of the perfect place to land. I still get to do the government side of things. It's very fulfilling. We do a lot of homelessness services, NGIS, great space to be in. It would be really hard for me to go back into like on the hill. Camera. I feel like I have pulled back the curtain too far. <laughs> would you go back on reality TV? I would never say never, but I can't see a I can't see a time within the sort of next five years at least that something wouldn't be prioritised above it. And it's not necessarily a baby. <laughs> I really love my job now. <laughs> and so, you know, it is, it is something... And it's, it's, it's different going on a reality TV show once you're a little bit further on in your career at 30 than maybe where I felt I was at 25. And everything feels a lot more flexible at 25. You're like, oh, I'm going to a Euro trip for six months. and oh, sweet. And finally, knowing everything that you know now... Everything that you went through, your friends, your family, the things that you've had to put up with, would you go on that very first Bachelor series again? I absolutely would. A hundred times over because it wouldn't – so it's like the most boring answer but it's like it wouldn't I, – I wouldn't be the person that I am today. I wouldn't have been able to write this book and as an extension of that – what I've tried to do in the book is be really raw and honest about my flaws as a human being to hope that maybe like some people find comfort or relatability in that and this is the proudest thing of my life. So Please I would put your hands together for Alicia Aiken Radburn. Thank you so much everyone for coming.